Hello and welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello and welcome back to the Me, Me, You, You show. Often guests find me that have had huge life-changing events that happen perhaps halfway through their lives or in later life and really make them reconsider the direction, their choices, how they see the world. But my guest today was born with a reality that she has been working through, facing, finding opportunity within, probably for as many years as she can remember. So this is a story that begins in childhood and continues to almost unhuman resilience and tenacity to tell you the story today. So I'm very excited to take you through that journey with her, for you to be able to empathize with a reality that so few of us have had to walk through or have had to stand in those shoes. But before we kick off and hear the story from the beginning, I do always ask my guests about anonymity. The Mimi You Show is an anonymous show, and I just want to reassure you that your identity won't be revealed unless you choose to do so. Are you happy with that? I am more than happy with that. I'm quite happy to reveal my identity because it's a unique story and I feel I can change a life by someone hearing my story than what I'm here to do. Well, I, I'm absolutely sure you will change more than one life by sharing the story today. But let's start at the beginning. Tell me to that point, why did you come? Why do you want to share your story with others? When I was traveling, the journey I was traveling, I felt so very alone. There were no young children that had a heart and lung problem the way that I did. There were no, yeah, young people, even in their 20s, that were having the, the, the problems that I was having. I always felt singled out because I couldn't breathe, because I couldn't run, because I couldn't do normal things. And I had to always stop before everybody else. And I felt really alone and like I was the only one going through my journey. And I don't ever want anyone to feel like that again. So I feel that in sharing my story, perhaps I can just help someone going through a similar journey to not feel like they're the only one and they're not the only one in the world and they're not alone. Well, that couldn't be a more noble reason to share your story and thank you. Thank you for coming here to do that. Tell us why, why did you have issues with your lungs and heart why were you not running around like the other children what was it that you were suffering with at the time i was born with a missing tricuspid valve so a tricuspid valve separates the oxygenated and deoxygenated blood in your heart 
So right from birth, my oxygenated and deoxygenated blood was mixing. So I didn't have enough oxygen. I also was born with and three holes in my heart. So my heart wasn't pumping optimally, optimally. And I was also born with narrowed arteries between the heart and lungs, which eventually led to a rare disease called pulmonary hypertension. Simply put, high blood pressure in the lung. I was, when I was born, I was a little, yeah, I was nearly perfect at 10 toes, 10 fingers, great set of lungs. I screamed well. But, but yeah, it was only sort of between three and six months old when I went to the GP and he was listening to my heart and he said to my parents, I'd like her to see a, a specialist. There's something I don't like the sound of. And I went, we went to, at that stage, the premier hospital, sort of heart hospital in the country. And they diagnosed me with what I've listed and my folks weren't convinced. So they took me to another hospital in a different province and they confirmed the diagnosis. And basically the doctors said to my parents, if she makes double digits, you're in luck. My gosh. So at three, three or four months old, your parents were looking at, I guess, a set of diseases that the doctors were telling them you wouldn't, you wouldn't survive in the end. Very dumb. I, as a mother, cannot even imagine how you, how you even leave that meeting in the hospital. But tell us, once you began to grow up, so you moved into becoming a toddler, obviously you did survive. Yes. Quite clearly. You mentioned at the very beginning you you weren't as active as other children, but what did that mean for your childhood, your your young years from there on out? Were you very unwell? Were you at school? Tell us a little bit about that. I think, you know, I always knew that I had a heart problem. I didn't know very much about the lung issues, but I always knew I had a heart problem and that when I was tired, I had to stop, which was fine until... Until I started hanging out with peers and, and we used to play kit, like catches at gay at break. And I've always, I could, I've always had to stop before everyone else. And like at school races and things, I was always last. It didn't matter how hard I tried. I was always exhausted. I always had to stop before everybody else. And I couldn't understand how anybody else could carry on for so much longer than me. Like right from early, I knew I was different, but I tried my very, very best to keep up with everybody else and to pretend that I was normal. So I think because I realized that I was different, I tried so hard to pretend that I wasn't. I just wanted to be the same. And you, you obviously couldn't run like the other children that you felt left out, as, as you're explaining. But were you are, oh, were you unwell or you were? You know, you you knew you had a heart problem, but were you sickly or were you able to sort of attend school and live your life? I I would say I was sickly because I wasn't sort of in and out of hospital, but I, you know because of the because of the lungs and the condition and that I was I was I was often suffering with sort of colds and flu, so I wouldn't miss a lot of school and I was often on antibiotics and to the point where I think I was five years old and we had my tonsils removed. But yeah, I was often, like, I would often miss school because I was sick with a cold or something to that effect. So I was never one of those sort of perfect record children that <laughs> I was able to be at school sort of 100% of the time. 
I, but yeah, it's sort of as I, as I got older, yeah, I think, you know, I, I just, I, even when I collapsed, I hadn't turned 13 yet. And I, I just, there was no indication that there was anything wrong. There was no indication that I was sort of less physically able than I had been previously. It, it came as a complete shock and surprise and yeah, I mean, I thought I was in the top form of my life. I'd been on holiday. I was brown as a berry. I'd been swimming and playing around. And I'd had the best holiday of my life. And yeah, I collapsed because my heart stopped. So by all accounts, you were already a little bit of a miracle because this doctor had told your parents that you wouldn't survive to double digits. You did. And in your childlike mind, you are at the top of your game. You are loving life. You are 17 years old. And you mentioned just now that then there was some form of collapse. So tell us a little bit about what happened on that day and, and what did it mean? So like I said before, I, I it was it'd been school holiday and I'd gone down to visit my dad in a different province and then come back home with my mum. And we went grocery shopping because as you, and when you come back from holiday, the grocery cupboard is empty. So we went grocery shopping and I bumped into a matric rugby playing prefect from school. Tall, dark, had some blue eyes, like tanned, gorgeous. And we stood in, in the grocery store chatting and eventually took my number. And mum eventually came to me and she's like, okay, I've done the whole grocery shop by myself. I've now loaded all the groceries into the car and you need to come home. So anyway, I'm on top of the world and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy. And she says, okay, let's unpack the groceries. I'll make myself a cup of tea and then you can come and tell me all about it. So we do that. She's lying on her bed with her cup of tea and I'm standing at the end of it and I'm telling her all about the guy and how wonderful he is and whatever, whatever. And I've taken a deep breath and I'm like, describing how beautiful this guy is and I've taken this deep breath and I'm like mom he's so ah! and then I fall backwards onto the floor and my mom burst at the first started laughing so I've always been a bit of a drama queen but then I, I didn't actually get back up and mom tells the story that she peers at the end of the bed and I'm lying on the floor I cold turning blue so yeah she she rushes me to the medical center at the road and basically drives, <laughs> drives basically into the waiting room and yells for A doctor comes and checks me for signs of life. And he shakes his head with us at my mom and says, no, I'm sorry, she's gone. And so, yes, I had made double digits, but I suppose the doctors were right because that's the point where I could have, that could have been me, that could have been the end for me. So what had happened is that because of the lack of oxygen and because my heart had to, so hard to try and get the blood around my body so that I could get enough oxygen. Like any muscle, the heart had grown. And the tendons that carry the electrical impulses to tell the heart to pump, it stretched like an elastic band, but they'd stretched so much that the electrical impulse couldn't pass anymore and my heart had stopped and I had collapsed. So your mother's in the emergency room. And the doctor is saying, I'm sorry, but she's dead. But clearly you're here today. So what on earth did Super Mum do to bring you back from the dead? 
<laughs> my mom's a tiger. Don't mess with my mom. <laughs> but yeah, she basically, she screamed at him and she started doing sort of what she thought was CPR. And that sort of galvanized the doctor into action and he took over and then managed to just sort of get my heart started again and, and, and me breathing. But yeah, they put in an ambulance, they rushed me to hospital. And I had a pacemaker fitted. So the pacemaker was to ensure that if a natural electrical impulse didn't pass, a mechanical one would. So that would keep my heart think. Okay. So when we talk about mums having, well, I don't know if it's a sixth sense or just a superpower, your, your mum definitely has it. And I'm sure as the story goes on, we will hear more about that. But you're now 13 and you have a pacemaker. What what happens next? What does what does a teen do once they have a, a pacemaker? And what did that mean for your life? Well, I did a science project on it and I called it 14 or 40. And I won a prize on my pacemaker. Well, well there we go. <laughs> Talk about turning around a negative to a positive. <laughs> but but yeah, that was sort of the first inkling that I got that my condition was serious and that I literally could just die at any moment. It was earth shattering. It was terrifying. It was actual magic for me to, to realize that. Yeah. 13, it, it, it was crazy. And it, it didn't, it took me over a year to recover from that. The, the collapse and the operation and the pacemaker and all of that. Um, mm. And it was super painful. So, yeah, so obviously after that, I developed a, a fear of ever having another operation or a procedure again because of the pain and, and how long my recovery But, yeah, basically, I mean, I, but because I missed nearly that whole year of school, I they passed me and they put me into the next sort of grade up but I then had to give up maths and I didn't, like I, I was intelligent enough to want to do maths. I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to go into a, a field where I wanted to do maths, but at the end of the day, if you took typing instead of maths, they run thought you were stupid. <laughs> I didn't really want to give up maths, <laughs> but I did. And I must be honest, I think it stood me in great stead more than maths ever would have, I think. <laughs> So tell us more about the journey from, I guess, we're now at 14 up until your early 20s. What what did that mean for your health and, and where did your story go from there? So, I, yeah, I mean, I was I was back at a sort of back to normal, if you will. But I, eventually I did my last two years of school. I was homeschooled because I just couldn't cope with being in a big commercial school anymore. I couldn't cope with going up and down the stairs and carrying all my books to you, all the various lessons and up and down stairs all day long. So I was eventually homeschooled. And then I said, you know, as you do, because you're not at school every day with your friends, you kind of lose touch eventually. I tried my very best to keep in touch with them, but, you know, life goes on and I'm sitting at home. But it, it, it was quite a difficult sort of time for me. And then... Until I decided to to go overseas and I did a sort of a two-year working holiday visa and I got a little bit of independence and I started to earn some money and things were really looking up for me. And I decided I was going to study public relations. And then 
yeah. And then I was well, and then I went studying, and I went partying with friends, and sort of living the life of a student and loving life. And then I started putting on weight, and I was like, oh, too much chips and cheese, or too much student food, like, better start eating some salad. And whatever I did, I couldn't sort of shake this sort of weight. My, my stomach was bloated and yeah, it looked as though I was starting to become pregnant and I couldn't understand. Anyway, I went for a checkup with my cardiologist and he realized that it wasn't weight, it was in fact water. So, which is, a, it builds up in your system when your heart isn't pumping properly and your heart goes into heart failure. I was, those were the early stages of mean heart failure. Um, so yeah. And how old were you twenty? I was in my early twenties. Yeah. I I was I hadn't turned twenty-two yet. So just sort of yeah, hadn't turned twenty two. Well, and what does that mean? Help us lay people out here understand whilst you go into heart failure, what does that mean medically? What does that mean for your life? What does that mean for studying public relations? T- tell us about that. So they decided that they would put in a new pacemaker so that maybe that would help and change sort of where the needs were connected and, and try and sort of change things from that perspective. Uh, I had a year left on battery life of the pacemaker anyway, so they said it was due for a change. So I went in for the off and they, they changed the pacemaker and then they, they obviously they put me on a diuretic and things like that to try and get rid of that fluid that was building up. But I never really sort of got back to that former vigor, if you will. So I would say from about the age of 24, I was basically on a steady decline. I thought I was less and less independent. I was in bed more and more. I was having sort of more bad days. So a bad day, uh, no energy, couldn't get out of bed. Eventually I started to battle to choose steak and things like that. So then it became a lot of sort of over pasta that I was eating and soups. Uh, eventually, my folks bought me a, a an electric toothbrush because brushing manually was too much for me. Cutting cutting food, in, like steak and that, it was too difficult for me. I couldn't eat things like tramezzinis, which I loved because it was just too difficult to chew. Yeah, eventually, I was I was in I was in bed and just sleeping more and more. And, Mum said at one point I was sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day. She would wake me up for breakfast. She'd come in and wake me up for lunch, and then she'd wake me up for dinner, and we'd watch a couple of hours of TV, and then I'd be back in bed again. So if I'm extremely honest about what I'm hearing, it sounds to me like you were dying. Were you dying? Very much so. Yeah, we'd exhausted all, we'd exhausted all the drug options. They even put me on a very well-known drug that they use for men, Viagra, which was a, is a, actually a treatment for pulmonary hypertension to try and get the blood flow around your body better. But it didn't do anything for me. And, and basically, we'd exhausted all all the drug options. And I was on oxygen 24-7 as well. And if I wanted to go anywhere, it was in a wheelchair. So yeah, so then at that stage, there's nothing left to do. And I actually said to my my doctor, like, when do you put me on the transplant list? And he said to me, when you lose enough quality of life. And I said to him, well, this is what I'm experiencing. How much more quality of life would you like me to lose? 
and and we don't get wellness. So, and that, yeah, that's the new process. <laughs> so, in your late twenties, this mid mid to late twenties, you are put on the transplant list for a new heart. Is that correct? Yes, I was listed at twenty-eight years old. And for all of us that don't, again, know about how that works, what does that mean? You're, you're on a list. How long is the list? How likely are you to get to the top of the list? You know, how does that process work for someone that's told they need an organ transplant? So in every country, it works slightly differently. For me, it you have to, and, and I would assume for most countries, you have to go through a series of sort of checks and health checks and um, blood tests. So that when you do have a transplant, it needs to be a match. So there's less chance of rejection. So tissue match, blood match, for the lungs and the heart especially, it needs to be a size match. So the lungs have to be the right size to fit in my chest cavity. If they are too big for my chest cavity, they run the risk of not being able to inflate fully and then black them. By the same token, if the lungs are too small, I will end up with the same problem where I don't have enough oxygen to for my body. So it needs that that specifically a lung and a heart problem. Like it needs to be the right side. So if I've understood correctly now, we're talking about a triple transplant. So two lungs and a heart that they had to find you, which would be physically a fit, you know, genetically, uh, you know, blood types, all of these things a fit. And they had to find them at the same time. Is that correct? Yes. So three, yeah, three organs and preferably a set that works together as opposed to sort of, I, I couldn't have the heart and then the lungs because my doctor explained it to me that if I had a heart, just a heart transplant, that new powerful, well-working heart would probably pump so hard that the pressure in my lungs would basically explode my lungs. So it had to be a working unit together, all three of them. So tell us how you did emotionally in in the time ahead. You share whether it was months or years waiting, because as a, again, as as a lay lay woman to this process. That sounds like quite a tall order to find, you know, matching heart and lungs that sit you at the same time. And we've already established that you are sleeping 18 hours a day. How does one go through that emotionally? Tell us a little bit about what that meant for you. Sure. I think I think I was just so exhausted that I was actually happy to be listed because it meant I had a chance however minuscule it was, I didn't I didn't realize how tiny my chance was at the time. And I didn't realize then, but there had only been five heart double lung transplants in the factory at the time. And there'd only been one successful person that had lived past year one. She'd made it to three years. You know, and these are the things that I didn't know at the time. And they say that they say that information is power, but I'm actually glad I didn't know that and I found it out afterwards because I probably wouldn't have had so much hope if if I'd known those those facts in the beginning. But yeah, it, like I said, it, I was excited to be listed. It was a good thing. This was just the next rung on the ladder or step in the road 
and then you get the turn picker and you get less in the table and you get yeah you just the weight but stop on and on and on and eventually you get tired of fighting to the point where I had my 30th birthday and I was saying goodbye to everybody. I invited all my family, all my friends, and that I decided was going to be my last birthday party. I, I didn't think I was going to make a top business that year. And that was, I had that part to say goodbye to everybody. So they did arrive, this lungs and, and the heart, they did arrive. Tell us about the day that that happened. So, yeah, it was Halloween weekend and I had been sleeping and resting for six weeks so that I could go out one night with my friend for four or five hours and have some fun. And I was busy. It was a Friday and I was busy. So I was doing this career development. I was busy sewing this toy Dalmatian onto a coat of mine so that I could, you know, be Cruella. And my mum comes in and she says, you've been trapped in this room for six weeks and you need some fresh air and it's a beautiful day outside and you need to come outside and look at the garden and get some fresh air. And now I'm like protesting. I'm like, no, mum, I'm trying to save my energy. And she's like, I told you already, my mum's a tiger and you don't argue with her. So anyway, she gathers me up and we slowly walk sort of outside, we make our way outside and I'm, I'm on this permanent oxygen. So I've got this nasal cannula in my nose with this long hollow tube pumping oxygen through like that runs all the way through the house and out into the garden. And I can only get to a certain point in the garden because otherwise the tube runs out. So I've got to stand in the garden and I've got the sun on my back and it's just, oh, I'm just loving being outside and listening to the birds and feeling the, the warmth on my back and the sun. And mum's phone rings. And my mum's the type of person that she doesn't really hide much, especially from me. So she usually answers the phone in front of me. And this one time she steps away, but not just steps away. Like she goes around the corner where I can't hear her. And I'm like, that bushy. Anyway, she eventually comes back and she's got this look in her armor. And I was like, is that the call? And she's like, yes. Oh my gosh. And then we just shouting and we screaming and we so excited. And it didn't even cross my mind that someone else had done it because I was just so excited. Yeah, I was just so excited to be given a chance. And adrenaline took over because of the excitement. And I sort of, I was still on oxygen, but we went upstairs and I decided I was going to shower because being in hospital, you know, you're not going to shower for a good long while. I showered and I watched my hair and and it's just amazing what adrenaline can do. And then I phoned my dad and I said, this is the story. And yeah, we, they phoned us and said, yeah, the, the lungs will the jaw chest cavity come through. So we go through and we drive to the hospital and, uh, and as I'm walking in, my team, my transplant team is walking out to go and harvest the organs from the most beautiful 17-year-old girl in a different province. And my surgeon says to me, and he gives me a hug, and he says, I'm not going to know if the lungs are all good until I've had 
I look at them, opened up, and had a look at them. Because they won't transplant an organ that is less than perfect. But if there's any sort of mucus in the wilds or bruising or any deep whatsoever, they won't use them. And my heart sank to the floor and I was like, oh my gosh, this might not happen. And then I shook my head and I looked in my eye and I said, they mine, I'll be all out of her. So, were they yours? Were those lungs your lungs? Before I answer that, I've got to tell you that I go, we get into the hospital and we start preparing and I, you know, I, I decide I'm going to cut my nail because I, I want to be on morphine and morphine makes me itch. <laughs> I'll cut my nail. I'm not going to scratch. And then the bed next to me is a friend of mine who hit the heart. And if the lung aren't any good, he's going to hit the heart. So yeah, eventually at sort of 10 o'clock at night, we get the call and the lungs are good. And I get the transplant and my friend does. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for both of you in that moment. Yeah. It was hard. It was it was the best of times and the worst of times, eh? <laughs> but yeah, a year later, my friend did get his transplant. So I believe everything happened in a time. So they they bring them. They are the right lungs and the right heart for you. They come in this other province. Your nails are cut. You are <laughs> ready for surgery. Can you remember, I'm sure you can because of the way you're telling your story, but as you went into surgery, can you remember your last few sort of thoughts, feelings before you, you know, changed your body forever? Many hours so excited. I was just, I had so many plans for when I was well. I, I mean, I had dream boards and I had had hours and, and months and years to sit and daydream and plan what I was going to do when I was finally normal. And I was just so excited. And my mum was there and she, she just, like she was trying to hold back the tears. And I was actually sitting up in the bed. I wasn't even lying down. And I said, don't worry, love. I'll be fine. I'll see you in the morning. And I waved with this big smile on my face. Yeah, and then the operation was a quick four hours. <laughs> four hours. Oh, so, you know, more or less 30 years. And now in four hours, they have removed these organs that have been holding you back all of that time. And honestly, to me at least, miraculously replaced them with another pair of lungs and a heart. And then four hours later, you know, all hopes are that you are going to keep these organs. We we hear in the media about organs that get rejected or there's immune issues. So what was the, what was it like to wake up and what was the healing process that followed? I can only remember from sort of the Wednesday. So I went in on the Friday. I came out of surgery on Saturday morning. And like I said, I can only really remember from the Wednesday, but I remember I wake up in this because they put you in isolation. So I'm in this like glass room, I call it the fishbowl, and you can see out and everyone's staring into through the glass looking at you. <laughs> but I look around and I see that I'm, I can hear the beeping of the heart monitor and I'm all 
I've got tubes coming out of me and I'm all sort of, you know, booked up. And I realize I'm in the hospital. And then I'm like, oh, that means I have my heart blocked. Oh my gosh, I wonder if I can breathe. And I've taken a deep breath. And for the first time in my life, I feel oxygen at the very bottom of my lungs. And it was just the most incredible moment of my life. And that, when I had to thank the Lord above, because the impossible is possible. It's hard to imagine if someone who has been born able to breathe, what it's like to wait for 30 years to feel oxygen fill your lungs. So that is a, a hard reality for me to imagine one that I can deeply empathize with simply from a survival mechanism point of view. The healing process from there on, other than being full of gratitude and excitement that you can breathe, I've heard that it's it's hard, right? It's very hard to for the body to heal from such a traumatic surgery in many ways. What was that like and, and how long did it take for you to to be able to walk, to be able to go home. I was lucky. I was very lucky. I was textbook. I, yeah, they try and get you walking sort of as soon as possible. And, and yeah, I remember going on my sort of first walk with my physio around the, around the hospital and like not getting tired and thinking like, this is so weird. Why don't I need a break? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was, I was off the ventilator in 12 hours, which is pretty much unheard of. I was out of isolation and hospital. Yeah, I mean, I was out of isolation, I think, three days. And I was out of hospital within 11 days. So, yeah, incredible. I, I, was, I was one of the lucky ones. It's, it's amazing to think that you can just open up a body and replace such critical organs in 11 days later. You went home. So what did that mean for you? Well, I mean, what do you do next? I, I'm assuming that you have to be a little bit slow before you can take over the world. But uh, you know, what, what did you do when you got home and realized that, you know, you had a life to live? What did that mean for you? So I had to be, because of the immune and lowered immune system, um, and I still have next to no immune system at all uh, because of the newness of breast and on pregnancy. Um, I had to be in isolation for three months. So that was hard. Um, but physically, I had never been so well in all my life. I mean, I remember going grocery shopping with mum and being able to pick up a seven kg bag of potatoes and thinking I was superhuman. <laughs> like I'd never been able to do that before. And then, like I remember phoning my transplant coordinator and saying, am I allowed to use referral job and she said yes why and I said well I've been going up and down stairs and my calves are killing me I'd never done so much exercise or moving in my life so yeah it was yeah it, it's a slow process getting used to being well I would say it took me the better part of 10 years to, to figure out who I am as a well person and what my body's capable of and yeah, it, 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 I mean, life is a process of, of self-discovery, but it did. It took me 10 years to figure out who I am now 
that I'm not the girl with the blue lips who's dying of a heart condition. Wow. Congratulations on not being that girl anymore. I mean, it's it's such a phenomenal story to hear you. How many years ago now was was that surgery? Twelve in October. Twelve years. And what does that mean for you in the grand scheme of people that have transplants and, and in the continent and the place that you live? Is that that you are you a high performing transplant survivor? Where did, where does that put you? in terms of, you know, longevity and health and outlook. I am I am the longest living heart and life fast blood recipient on the continent of Africa, as far as I know. I am one of two in South Africa that has had this transplant and is still alive. Wow. Knowing the energy that you have simply on this show, I am not surprised. And I'm absolutely sure that you will continue to bring that energy and this zest for life for many, many, many decades ahead. Tell us a little bit about what you want to do with this line. You, you've defined yourself as a well person. Right? I learned so much from hearing that phrase from you because for people who haven't been living with critical illness, it's not something we think about, you know, being a well person, just being able to live. But you are living and you are living with such purpose. Tell us what you're going to do with it, having gone through all of that. Where's life today? Where's it going? How are you changing your future and, and, and your purpose? I, wow, there's, there's just so much that I've been able to do and, and, and take on. And it's just like, if you're not doing the best with what you've got, then like, what are you doing? But I, I am now a coach and I help people that have been diagnosed with terminal illness to ha find hope. And there's, there's always two paths. There's the people that want to fight and live on. And then the people that, that don't necessarily want to do that and feel that their time is up and it, it's finding hope in both directions or creating hope in both directions and supporting not only the patient, but the families and the caregivers through that. So I call myself uh, a hope coach. So I help them to find hope. I also help people to prepare for surgery of any kind, whether it's knee surgery or <laughs> transplant. There's a process that you need to, to follow in order to have the best outcome possible. And me being in and out of hospital, I know the process. I know the stuff you've got to do in order to have the best experience and the best outcome. And then I'm also a professional speaker and I train speakers. So I, yeah, I speak and I share my story and hopefully I will change some of the world on imagining you are already doing it you are already changing that world i meet lots of coaches in in my work but i i just love the idea of a hope coach because not only i mean everybody needs hope right it's a human it's a human need state i deeply believe that but you are doing it with people that i'm sure are creating i mean it's a very complicated place to create hope Hope is, is a difficult thing to find in the, in the face of death. And I think that your choice to do that, having lived around death for so long, is very, very bold and brave. And the world is extremely lucky to have you. For anyone who wants to find you and hear more about being Africa's longest lasting triple transplant survivor and all of the work you're doing to help other people in this space, whether they're in Africa or far, far beyond, where can they find you? TinaBLR.com 
and all social, social media at Tina B. Alana. Wonderful. Well, in so doing, we have shared your identity, Tina. We have shared your location. So everyone listening, Tina B. Alive is, well, Tina is very much alive in Africa and out there helping others either live or die gracefully with hope and to the best of their potential in the time that they they have. Thank you so much for coming and sharing with us today. I think the perspective and the tenacity that you've been able to give me, for, for all of our listeners, uh, is just from a perspective that we so rarely get the opportunities to step into and, and live through. So it's been an absolute honor and I wish you all the luck in taking this journey forward. And I'm absolutely sure that our journeys will continue to intertwine as, as we create more empathy for everyone that we share this planet with. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Mimi. It's been awesome. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi UU. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www.joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi UU Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.